Tinamu. No. Tinamu. No. Um. You can introduce it for once. Okay. Hello and Hello welcome and to welcome another to very boring episode. <laughs> welcome to episode 41. We're now into podcasts. <laughs> We're now well into the foros. <clears throat> the foros. <clears throat> right. I'm so, RJ McCready. Oh. Who's that? You know the movie The Thing? Yes, of course. I do know the movie The Thing. I've heard, I've seen it. Well. Yeah. That's uh, Kurt Russell's character. Yeah. Well, I'm The Thing. It's true. But I don't know it. Right. Now, what we're going to do this episode is something radically different because we figured we've hit the big 4 going to buy sports cars and go out with people much younger than ourselves and uh, shake it all around. Right, John? Oh, yeah. Radically different. We're radically changing different. the order of the segments. <laughs> but didn't we... Hold on. Didn't we just say that we're not doing that and we're actually going to start with the normal stuff? I can't remember. No, no, no. We're, doing, we're going to try your radical order. Okay. Yeah. Now... You know what I want to know, John? Yeah, what what do you want to know? I want to know. Uh, I want to know how much we know about the transition in synapses from a sprawling posture uh, to one in which there is a parasitically aligned limbs. And more specifically, (laughs) I want to know which pressures may have brought it about and how those animals in the intermediate stages of evolution might have moved. Well, that's an amazing coincidence, Darren, because we've got a catch question. (laughs) <laughs> about that very topic from Angela Connor. No, um, but we need we do need to say first of all that the two minute rule is in effect, and things will be brief and succinct. And and the drinking game <coughs> is uh, uh-huh. so I listened to the last episode and oh god, fantastically <laughs> annoying. So so um so any sorry you're taking us off on a tangent here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. stem mammals, non mammalian synapsids, um. What do we actually know about the, the evolution of locomotion? Well, to keep it really brief and succinct, and we've already established that people have got a synapsid cladogram in front of them at all times, and they're familiar with the hypothesized branching order for this grand group of animals. Yeah, yeah. yeah if you think of dimetrodon-type animals, dimetrodon is a sphenacodontid. That is outside the major group of synapsids called the therapsids. And dimetrodon and its ilk slash kin are genu- generally... Uh, posited to be sprawlers, so with laterally directed hind limbs, uh, f- uh, femora and, and humeri, and that they're doing a, a kind of waddling, sprawling gait. Then, from sphenacodontid-type animals, we have the therapsids evolve, and in early therapsids, animals like the Biomasuchians and the Dinocephalians, you have modifications of the pectoral girdle, which mean that the humerus is not projected as strongly laterally, but um, does still have a still a prominent doing the actions here. Yeah, yeah. It's very helpful for our <laughs> listeners. There's still extensive backwards and forwards movement across a kind of saddle-shaped glenoid uh, on the pectoral girdle. Mm-hmm. But the humeri are less projecting sideways but probably projecting sideways and backwards at the same time uh, at that kind of 
inclination like that, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? But modific- at the same time, modifications in the pelvis, the femur has got a more strongly interned head, um, and the anatomy of the, the ankle as well shows that the hind limb is more aligned parasagitally. So it's thought that you've got the start of an erect, an erect gait present in the hind limbs and a semi-erect gait present in the forelimbs. And basically that kind of system with a variety of what you might term improvements is what's then carried on through the rest of synapsid history up into mammals. And then even in mammals, some people think there's still like a, uh, a degree of sprawling lateral direction of the, the humeri, even even up into mammals, some, some people think. Um, but I said that before you got to this condition, you had a full sprawl in animals like Dimetrodon, and it turns out that that might not be true at all, because this is one of those cases where people have looked at the bones mm. and said, these animals are fully sprawling, but they've got trackways of them, and the trackways don't show them sprawling. So there are trackways that are thought to, be, have, thought to have been produced by Dimetrodon-type track makers, and they are not consistent with the sprawling gait. They show hands and feet rather closer to the midline than seems plausible if there's a full sprawl sprawl going on yeah and um yeah as a result there's a there's a couple of papers where people who've written about the trackways have said have we got it wrong were animals like dimetrodon not sprawling but were they actually high walking with their limbs closer into the body and um I mean to cover this at Tetrapod Zoology. I mean to write up my thoughts on this. Yeah. Because um, I think it fits into a larger picture that's emerging about like gait in everywhere. Well, it's quite well known that crocodilians can adopt a high walk where their limbs are semi-erect. But a lot of lizards can as well. A lot of lizards walk with semi-erect or even fully erect, pretty much, limbs. I think there's, there's no dichotomy here. It's all, you know, as usual, it's all shades of grey. Bit of a mess. Yeah, there's um, also, as I'm not really knowing much about this topic, but there's also two ways you could move towards an erect gait, isn't there? You can sort of just, if you imagine you're sprawled out, just moving them in in the same line, like I'm doing the action there, like this. Mm, yeah, or like that. Yeah. you start with the sprawl, and you can just tuck your elbows in yeah, to your body. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you're still yeah. crouched, Yeah. but you've moved to... So your limbs are more in line in the in the way you're walk with the way you're walking. Um, this is always and it sounds start- like the what you're saying is that the early synapsids might have moved their elbows in mm. because they started directing the this the well the the, the um, skeletal anatomy suggests they started moving the elbow down backwards as well as outwards. Yeah. Um, so what what. Yeah, I'm doing well, well here, aren't I? Well, well this is I something. Speak this good is something this that's morning. You uh, do many words come out very quick and in sensible order. The, the talkings are good, but yeah. uh, this is something that's hard to explain through words yeah. alone. <laughs> Seems to be using words of some kind. But because yes, the the conventional interpretation that you will find in, for example, the book I normally go to on this subject is Tom Kemp's Mammal Like Reptiles. And the origin of mammals. There you go. That's for the listeners. Copy mm-hmm. there. Um, well, yes, where what you've just described is so. So, thinking only of the forelimbs, for example, the humerus sticking out sideways, and then yes, this is thought that which is similar to 
the humour I finished the sentence there. Yeah. Hey, we don't talk in sentences, we talk in clauses. But anyway, the, the humour starts sticking out laterally and then they end up... Uh, the glenoid is rearranged such that the humeri are projecting uh laterally. so it's like and that's a way of you're bringing the hands in but what thanks in part to the bearded dragon i've got and thanks in part to looking at lizards and being interested in lizards in general um i think about this a lot in lizards lizard gait lizards are supposed to have humeri that project laterally but a lot of them uh, actually walk with the humeri almost pillar-like, straight down yeah. from the... Uh, maybe they can do that because they're mostly small and because they've got so much cartilage and there's a lot of cartilage in the lizard, scapula coracoid, that there's a lot of play there, more than there is in big animals like, say, dinosaurs or big therapsids. But um, I don't know. That's, I think that... I, I wonder whether if, say, Dimetrodon isn't doing a full sprawl all the time, but it's... It's doing something that's more erect. Again, thinking just about the forelimbs here. Yeah. I wonder if it's more to do with the humeri being being held straight beneath the body. And people have said, there was a long discussion on this on Facebook, I can't remember if you were involved, but um, people have said, oh, they couldn't do that because that's not consistent with the shape of the humeri. But it's like once you start accounting for a possibly gargantuan unknown quantity of cartilage, which may well have been present based on how kind of like unfinished the limb bones are, once you chuck in lots of cartilage, I hate to say it, but um, there's all kinds of possibilities present that are difficult to establish from the skeletal data alone. Yeah, it's really one of the most annoying things, I suppose, if you want to reconstruct the functional morphology of an extinct animal is that it's become fairly clear that the cartilage is so important and it can be so extensive that it's just really difficult to say anything for sure about anything. Really annoying. Which yeah. I suppose uh, brings to the fore the 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 trackway data again, doesn't it? I mean, yes, trackways are yeah. very important for gait. Yes, so that's kind of the, that's the key thing here because I don't think we would have any of these thoughts were it not for the fact that people. I don't know. We might have possibly said, "Hold on, uh, look at look at what we know about crocs and, and lizards. Is it possible that that early synapsids like Dimetrodon could do a high walk as well? We might entertain those notions." Bear in mind, people have only started studying crocodilian gait and lizard gait in a, you know, quantifiable sense in the past 20 or 30 years. It's possible they would take that and start applying it to other animals. Hmm. But, yeah, but, but it's the, tra- the trackway. The trackways are the, are the, are the clincher here. Because you can't argue with that because <clears throat> it doesn't matter what hypothesis you come up for, come up with... Well, I'm sorry. If you've got a good trackway, it's showing you the animal did something. Yeah. Whatever you, whatever you think. But I guess the trackway doesn't, d- doesn't help us distinguish between directing the humerus backwards versus downwards, does it? Mm. And of course, it'd be doing a bit of both, but that, they're two different um, yeah. ideas of how you could get a narrower trackway. And I don't see how yeah. They, they, yeah, I don't see how you'd distinguish necessarily. No, I, I think you're right. I'm not sure that you can. But I want to come back to this. So like I say, I've been drawing lots of uh, stem mammals, non-homalian synapsids for Tetsu Big Book, the Big Book Project. Um, <laughs> got to say it without sighing, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, need, I need to write about those. The, the, the main constraint on writing about those animals is the images, just getting hold of enough pictures to, 
But, yeah. Um, so one more thing before we move away from that, Angela did specifically ask about the, what was the evolutionary pressure and what was the advantage of, of, of morphing to a more kind of like erect gait? Sorry, you seem like you were going to say something there. Mm, yes, <laughs> I was stroking my beard. Um, uh, yeah, no, okay. Have you got an idea? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, I'm pretty sure we've covered this before. We've definitely be. covered this on, in a podcast episode before, but of course we can't check it because we don't have transcripts of all, <laughs> of all episodes, right? Um, there's two things. One is that it probably is more efficient in energetic terms to have more erect limbs at larger body size. So if they're becoming bigger, then it makes sense that in step with that, they are evolving a more parasagittal gait, right? I think that's pretty sensible. But the other thing is, that now I really bodged the explanation of this last time and I'm about to bodge it horribly again. <laughs> it's something to do with uh, if you have a sprawling gait, then it is generally, um, it generally works best if there's lots of side to side flexion of the body. Yeah. If the limbs are. Uh, how do, how do you explain? How do you explain this, what I'm doing now? Waddling. <laughs> well, waddling is like shake. Well, I suppose it is because it's shaking the body from side to side, isn't it? Yeah. If you've waddling got a sprawling at a di- gait. A diff- uh, like the back and the front are waddling at different. But there must be things. some way of explaining. You're setting up a sinusoidal wave along the length of the body. I guess yeah. that's what I'm trying to explain. So if you're sprawling, then you're yeah setting up a wave through the body. So you're twisting the body from side to side. And if you're twisting the body from side to side, you're causing the shape of the rib cage to change, which has obviously got to have some impact on how you breathe, because obviously most animals are breathing by moving their ribs. So would it be better if you could avoid this? So if you evolve like uh, limbs that are straight down and just doing like moving parasagically, parasagically means parallel to the long axis of the body. If you're moving your limbs parasagically, you're not forcing the body to move side to side. So you're not deforming the rib cage with your step cycle, which means you've decoupled, well, in theory, not in practice, but in theory, you've decoupled your limb movement from any actions of your rib cage, in theory. In in practice, no, because when animals run, their internal organs jump around and we know that you know movement of the liver and stuff has still got some impact on breathing cycle and so on but in theory that's it's more to do with that's what i'm thinking do you see what i'm getting at means you can keep a stiff chest yeah and abdomen also i would say related to that is that you just get your chest off the ground more easily right yeah which is more efficient yeah easier to breathe while you're actually walking i mean maybe it's um well, I don't know. Maybe that's got something to do with it too. Oh, I'm it betting it is something to do with breathing. Yeah, it's a yeah. collection it's, of these things. It's advantageous for relatively large animals that want to be active. Yeah. So this uh, this idea the 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 running step running movement is linked to breathing is known as carrier's constraint, um, proposed by I think I think it's called David Carrier, physiologist, and it's been proposed that. Tetrapods of various kinds have evolved solutions that stop them from suffering from carrier's constraint, which I'm sure we've covered that covered that before. We have. So we'll um, mention it before. Yeah. yeah. 
I was just going to say that being lizards as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, being off the ground is also advantageous in cluttered habitats. You know, when we think of running animals, I think you think of a think of a running animal. You generally think of something running on a plane. Yeah. But of course, planes haven't existed throughout the whole of geological time, and lots of animals that would have had to move quickly would have been doing so in sort of like you know forests or semi-deserts or scrub. I don't know. All kind, there's all kinds of habitats. Actually, yeah, of course, there's deserts as well in there. But yeah. but um. Animals have been moving in habitats where there's ground clutter. So being keeping the body off the ground would be advantageous to avoid, you know, roots and rocks. Yeah, and, and having to just charge through all of that stuff. Yeah. Is, yeah. Well, I think so, that's actually a decent explanation in itself as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we've, we've become very technical within the first couple of minutes of the podcast. That doesn't normally happen, does it? So, um... But, <laughs> well, it's the new order, Darren, the new order. <laughs> okay so there you go thank you for thank you angela um and uh people should check out angela's stuff yeah uh let's plug angela because i love her stuff angela connor dot no no it is angela r com. oh sorry that's where they are oh oh so you're not angela r. <laughs> it's not Darren. <laughs> it's angela r connor oh no that's not right it's coming up with web page not available what the hell? AngelaRConnor.com Well, it's not working for me right now. I don't know if I'm having a bad internet day. Well, I'm still talking to you, so I'm guessing you've got a typo in there or um, an extra slash or something. I really haven't. Okay. Uh, anyway, classic, this is great podcasting. Classic podcasting, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, you can go to um, AngelaRConnor.com um, and why not? Angela's got a... Angela has a Patreon. Um, what does she do? She does creatures, doesn't she? She does creatures, yes. Creatures and dinosaurs. Well, much like all the things we talk about, really. And she does some neat little... Uh, like paintings with a little bit of animation in them. They're really nice. Anyway, I I don't know. It's it's kind of it's kind of silly trying to describe work when people can just visit the website. Um, but yeah, if you like paintings of dinosaurs and creatures, www.angelaarconnor.com. If that makes any difference, that this this time it's working for me. So yeah. yeah. Illustrator, sculptor, brilliant creatures, design. Right, okay. Um, yes, thanks. Right, what do we want to do now? Do you want to... Um, more cash for question or... See, we've been toying with the idea of just throwing everything to the wind. <laughs> Anarchy. <laughs> Talk about anything. And- I, I thought you wanted to change, try your order this time, and then we'll try Anarchy next time. Okay. Yeah. So, so do that means that... Does that mean another cash for question? It does mean another yeah. cash for question. So we have a cash for question from Tim Morris. Hello, Tim. Hello, Tim. Now, the question's very long, so I won't read out the whole thing. Um, but basically, it's asking, are the scales in various tetrapods homologous? So you have scales in... Actually, is it just tetrapods? No. It's animals. His question's only about tetrapods. Because he's saying, he's saying, are the scales... Homologous to fish scales. Yeah. Or reptile scales. 
pelicosaur scales, mammalian scaly tails. So it does include fish. Yeah. Um, so are scales, just as a general term, are they homologous? Yeah. And I suppose we can go into which ones might be. So summarise the question even more. Scales. What's that all about? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to say anything, however intelligent it may or may not be? No. Okay. Uh, no, it's really Blank complicated. Expression. It's really complicated. Close your mouth, John. Yeah. It was really complicated. Go on. Um, some, some of them are, maybe, but yeah. not all of them. And yeah. although I think it gets into quite a bit of a knotty problem of exactly what you mean by homology, 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 homology too, right? Because I, uh, I realise that when I'm thinking about it, I don't really know what I mean exactly. Yeah, okay. So I'd have to have a proper definition of homology for myself, and I realised I didn't really have one. Yeah, I reckon we should ign- avoid that whole Avoid that, yeah, because it's just a whole, of, like, yeah. rat's nest of genetics and right. evo-devo stuff. Okay, and, and as so often happens with these questions, Tim has pretty much provided the answer in the question, actually. Uh, so you have the, the, the basic problem comes down to the fact that any hard keratinous or bony structure embedded somewhere in the skin is termed a scale. So when I say embedded in the skin, I mean it can be embedded in the skin or it can sheath the skin. It can be on the outside of the epidermis. And there's all these variety of structures in, in fish and in the animals that we loosely term amphibians and obviously in reptiles and also in mammals, you know, pangolins and rodent tails and so on. And we call all these things scales, but scale is just a catch-all term for any hard thing in or on the epidermis or even in the dermis. So, and yeah, they're not homologous in the sense of their being, them being like having identical origins. So fish scales are like little plates of bone that grow concentrically at their edges, new bone being outlaid at the edges, and they are embedded within the skin tissue, within the skin tissue. They are actually, they're actually covered by uh, a thin or sometimes even a thick layer of skin. And the... Uh, but then, of course, you've got loads of crazy number of variations because you've got animals, you've got fishy things that do grow keratin on top of them, and then you get like even bone on top of them. Right, and things right, right. Like, Let's not get bogged like, down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But the, then ancestral tetrapods, so it's well known that tetrapods like, um, you know, things like ichthy- ichthyostega and temnospondyls and various other archaic groups, they've got uh, fish type scales, and these are homologous to fish scales. They are embedded within the epidermis. They normally would have been visible in the animal because they're close to the surface of the skin, but there would have been some, a little bit of skin on top of them. These structures, so these fish-type scales, which are all over the body, these are not at all the same as the things that we call scales that are present in reptiles. So you think of like lizard and snake scales are nothing to do with fish scales whatsoever. Lizard and snake scales, squamate scales, are very weird. They are actually outgrowths of the epidermis. So like, imagine... If you will, imagine that your skin is covered by a million papillae, like little weird flanges that are going off your skin. And then they're not just naked skin in squamates, they are sheathed in keratin, normally on both the upper and, and lower surfaces, but not necessarily on the lower surfaces as well. Uh, that's just 
crazy weird, but that's actually what squamates have got. So their scales, these keratinized outgrowths of the skin, nothing at all to do with fish scales. Mm. Then you've got other groups of reptiles, like of course archosaurs, where there are like raised lumps that are covered in the covered in a keratinous sheath. And of course, this is what you get in crocs and, and birds and other archosaurs, dinosaurs, and whatnot. And uh, some people prefer to call them scoots because they're, te- they're clearly not epidermal outgrowths the same way that the, the squamate scales are. Then the things you've got in like uh, mammals, they're novel. They're not, they're not related to these structures, certainly not homologous with them. They evolved independently on several occasions and nothing to do with fish scales. What about um, stem mammals? Okay, non-mammalian synapsids. Again, drink. Um, <clears throat> well, it seems that they uh, early amniotes, and I'm sure everyone knows what amniotes are, right? The group of tetrapods that includes synapsids and reptiles that supposedly all share the presence of an amniotic membrane and other membranes as well. Um, they seem to have inherited epidermal fish-type scales, but probably only on the ventral surface. So they seem to have reduced the uh, epidermal scales on the dorsal surface of the body. We think that early synapsids, again, talking about dimetrodon-type animals, we think they've got these fish-type epidermal epidermal scales uh, along the ventral surface of the body. We know that thanks to a couple of fossils, and there's also a couple of trace fossils where these animals like squatted on the ground and left scaly belly impressions. But there's a couple of skin impressions suggesting that stem mammals, non-mammalian synapsids, didn't have these things uh, elsewhere on the body. Mm. Um, what else interesting is there to say? Oh, I think I, I, I always think that I explain these things badly, but did I get across the whole, I think I got across what I wanted to say. The fact that they seem to have different, different origins and yeah. Um, so I guess one question is, so if early synapsids have fish type scales, did they inherit them from fish or is that a, um, or is it novel? Um, I'm pretty sure that they are these that they are primitive epidermal scales inherited directly from fish. I think that's right. So right. I think fish type scales are carried through into tetrapods. They and they're retained in tetrapods all the way into early amniotes. Okay, so the, I guess think the other that's right. interesting. Yep. Okay, so I guess the other interesting node is archosaurs and um, squamates. So, what's presume- the primitive reptile scale like? Is there one? Yeah. Well, we don't have any information from the fossils. I don't yeah. think. I think there's a couple of things from archaic synapsids, but from early reptiles, I don't think there's anything. So you think of like the classic early reptiles, carboniferous animals like Hylonomus and. Those kinds of those those kind of grade of, of of really early things, I don't think there's anything known. I don't think we know what they were doing. We don't know anything until we think that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I've ever read anything about what the like ancestral diapsid scale would have been like. If you've got obviously archosaurs and squamates, which belong to different branches of diapsid reptiles, 
Um, I don't think we know what the condition was like beforehand. It may have been written about. I know there are people that have got a great interest in the evolution of, of scales. Um, so I guess the cool. question is whether they're homologous. Because mm. yeah. they're different in structure, but it's it's easy to imagine how one would evolve into the other, I think. Yeah. Right? You just need to start like a little bit of overlap on an archosaur-type scale. Yeah. Or you reduce that overlap um, if you start with the overlapping-type squamate scale. So you just start yeah. to reduce that overlap until you've just got sort of a, a, a lump, if you see what I mean. But I, th- but I, think, I think it's that this is something you have to be an expert on the um, embryology of epidermis yeah. here, really. But I think that the embryology of these things is completely different. That the... Um, Squamate type scales, which I said, you know, uh, like dermal growths with keratin on top of them. I think that's got a completely different origin from the reticulate. That's the word I was looking for. The reticulate or scutes, these overlapping, these non-overlapping, sorry, um, structures present in archosaurs. I think they've got completely different origins. And there's also all this work on what f- specific form of keratin they're formed from. Because people talk about alpha keratin and beta keratin. It used to be said that everything's got alpha keratin apart from feathers, which are formed of beta keratin. And this was an argument that feathers are not derived from scales, but are completely novel. But then I understand, again, this is not something I've kept up with, but I understand that that was shown to be far more complicated in the late 1990s and that lots of structures actually incorporated both kinds of keratin. And at the moment... Uh, I'm, I'm afraid my understanding of this is quite yeah. rudimentary. I'm sort of aware of these issues, but... <laughs> yeah, see, this is what I was sort of getting at with the um, notion of homology there, is that, okay, but some of these, surely the genetic, some of the genetics that go in, even if it looks like they're developmentally different, what if there are a significant number of genes that still go into coding for that sort of thing? That, that get reactivated or whatever, you know, it just it's it starts to become really, yeah, complicated, and I don't feel like I I understand what uh, I mean by it well enough. No, you've taken us to a dark, dark place. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> dark which, place of ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> if if anybody does, there's harking back to comments made in previous episodes if, if there are only Evo Devo people who have who have a, a good handle on uh, the developmental embryology and homology of, of uh, yeah reptile scales and how they relate to the earliest types of bony structures called scales in non-amniotes ha yeah okay <laughs> I think we've exhausted our ignorance on that one yeah but it's a good it's a good question, Tim, and it's yeah. it's one of those things that I think is definitely of widespread interest, and because it because it crops up all the time among among people that are interested in the sort of stuff we are. Uh, every now and again, there is actually some you know publication on this that does have a uh, some useful information. For example, there was a thing published a couple of years ago on the uh, head in quote scales head scales of crocodilians mm. and it was shown that rather than being structures that have got a discrete um, developmental origin the individual head scales in crocodiles this is a cool paper you should check it out they're, they're, everything about their appearance and distribution 
is the result of the topography of the skull and the fissures and gaps between the, in quote scales is just the result of cracking. Yeah. So the croc skull, uh, croc all crocs, alligators and gorils, you should imagine basically the whole of the head sheathed with keratin, but it's just as the keratin grows around the lumps and bumps of the skull, it like folds and, you know, yeah. cracks and breaks in certain places, giving every single individual animal a different pattern of in quotes, scale scales. pattern. Yeah. So they're not scales at all. Well, yeah, it depends what you mean by scales. So. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We shouldn't, we're not trying to be, I don't know about you, but I'm not trying to be a Nazi about this term because like like so many terms, it's, got, it's a, a word that we use. We don't have to pretend that we can only use it in a specific scientific context. You know, scale does mean a thing, doesn't it? So. Yeah, and I think in this case it's going to be, it's going to reduce the term to meaninglessness if we insist on homology. Mm. Um, I think we should insist more on just sort of a general description of what it is, which is a hard hard yep. thing in or on the skin that yeah. is, um, what, in discrete formations or something like this. Well, we even talk about, you know, like humans have an epidermal scales, don't we? We've got tiny little... Tiny little scales, yeah. yeah. So yeah, little so. hardenings in, the, in or on the skin. Yep. Something like that. Okay. Do you reckon Tim um, will be happy with that? Uh, I hope so, because <laughs> as much as we can. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Tim. Yeah. Um, so, we've got one more cash for question. All righty. Um, and it is, please discuss Myotragus? Myotragus. Myotragus. And the giant... Menorcan and Lagomorphs. John, how might you imagine portraying these animals in life? Well, yeah, John. You can probably tell from me reading that out. I've never even heard of them. <laughs> Darren, what do you think the purported evidence of domestication attempts were made with this species? What do you think of the purported? Oh my god, I'm re- my reading is so bad today. Ugh. Evidence that domestication attempts were made with this species. <laughs> Were they domesticated? Were these giant <laughs> rabbits domesticated? Um, That's all about, no, he's not asking about were the rabbits domesticated. Myotragus. My, he's talking about myotragus because there's claims that's been domesticated. Oh, but I see that's not implicit in the question. No. And how realistic is it to suppose that dwarf mammoths might have survived Mediterranean islands into early historic times? This is not a question. This is like seven questions. P.S. Sloth rhymes with mouth. Oh, hang on, ma- shut, 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 shut. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Sloth rhymes with mouth. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Moth doesn't rhyme with sloth. <laughs> I don't understand. You don't say moth. <laughs> mouth. Oh, look, a mouth. No, I just don't get it. Sorry. Hang on. Do you know what butterfly Are you is? Serious? You're not serious. Good. What? You're not. You don't get no. it. Well, not really. That sloth, sloth. with moth. Sloth. But who says sloth? <laughs> it's sloth. Rhymes with moth. Sloth doesn't rhyme with moth. <laughs> sloth does rhyme with moth. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sloth does rhyme with moth, but it's not spelt moth. It's spelt moth. That's so stupid. So it's sloth. Sloth. <laughs> oh right. Oh my god. How Americans say sloth. 
<laughs> you mean the wrong way. <laughs> Jeez, that took a while. What was going on in your head? Okay. <laughs> ah, so, yeah, back to the question. Yeah. Now, the thing about butterflies, butterflies are just moths that fly in the daytime. That's what I wanted to say. Yes, that's true. Take that, entomologist. Fact facts. <laughs> Moth facts. Moth facts. <laughs> Most facts. Back to the question. Yeah. Let me be real brief with this one. Mm. Myotragus. Myotragus is a goat-like artiodactyl from some of the Mediterranean islands, and it's got like famous protruding sort of teeth described as like gnawing teeth, and it's also got particularly short, robust metapodial bones. It's from the Balearic Islands, I should say. And um, so it seems to have been an animal that's uh, specialised for hopping around on, like, you know, rocky, precipitous outcrops, which is true of uh, goat antelopes, hype, bovids in any case. And there, I was always amazed by the fact that there was apparently a short phase where because of its gnawing-style teeth, uh, it was suggested... <laughs> seriously, it was suggested at one time. There's a book from the 1980s by David Attenborough that talks about this, where people thought that it was like a, a, a rabbit or a rodent that had convergently evolved in a goat-like form, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, which is not true. It is a bovid. And there are claims that Myotragus was, uh, d- was domesticated or at least semi-domesticated um, by ancient Balearic people. But the evidence for this is pretty poor. It comes from the fact that they find the bones of this bovid in the same caves as evidence of recent human of human occupation, contemporary, semi-contemporaneous human occurrence, like bits of pottery and, I don't know, stuff like that. And uh, my understanding is that it hasn't panned out at all. There's no real evidence to think they were... Look, that there was any sort of semi-domestication of Myotragus. And the other interesting about it is histological work indicates that it was super slow-growing uh, and that its babies were really tiny. And apparently there's some... I haven't read the papers, I haven't done any research on this whatsoever. Some indication that the babies were altricial or something. So... Uh, the, the babies, the babies of hoofed mammals are generally precocial, which means you know they're born and they're able to run around literally within minutes, sometimes seconds. And the claim is that Myotragus babies are like more like human babies, like little pink squidgy things that can't do anything for themselves, and they take a long time to mature. And it's been claimed that this uh, this is linked to um, like a really slow physiology and a kind of, or oh, I don't want to say ectothermy, but kind of like a, a more, in, in quotes, reptilian style of growth in this animal, which mm. isn't because it's some like outlier to the rest of placental mammals, but it's presumably a uh, peculiar specialization of like it being an island endemic animal. That's what's been said. I, I, I need to check exactly how that's been responded to. Mm. Uh, so so myotragus, pretty interesting animal. Not very big, you know, little goat type thing. Forge-facing eyes, apparently. Right, okay. That's a bit weird. It does look odd, especially if you see it from the front. Did you just Google Myotragus? I did. Myotragus. And they've got a... um They've got a skull on Wikipedia, and okay, it's prop. Their eyes aren't as forward-facing as some of the pictures show, but they're still fairly forward-facing. Certainly more forward-facing than a goat or something, I think. Oh, that's really nice. A few very nice life reconstructions of this animal. Indeed. Yeah. So, 
But it, it, I mean, to be honest, if you didn't know any different and you saw these pictures, you would just think that's a goat. Well, yeah. <laughs> really? It's, it's like, it's not that weird. And even its short metapodials don't strike me as significantly different from those of other little antelope type things and goaty type things from elsewhere in the world. <laughs> no, it doesn't look like an odd animal to me at all. I mean, no. Uh, yeah. Looks like a lot of other animals. Although its forward facing eyes on a goat type thing are a bit weird. But- well,. Yeah, I was watching a video of a cyclops, baby cyclops goat the other day, which mm-hmm. of course only had one eye, which was entirely forward facing. And uh, yeah, it looked pretty weird too. I'm betting. That looked, or would that it look like weird. just any other goat? Well, just with one big central forward facing eye, but the forward facing—that's that's my point. You see, yes. So, uh, yeah. So my tragus, then the giant Menorcan legomorph. This is Neurolagus rex, which of course is well known to Tetsu readers and also to readers of a little book that John and I and our good friend Momo Kozman published called All Yesterdays because um, this inspired the reconstruction of Neurolagus is that famous one where the, the neck is like dead straight uh, which doesn't take into account the fact that rabbit necks are certainly not straight they are almost S-shaped bringing the head up sort of to the level of the shoulders and uh, the reconstruction of Neurolagus didn't account for that. They, 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 did, they did like make some arguments about why they thought the neck posture was unusual but if you actually look at the neck vertebrae they, they figure they don't um, yeah, there's, there's every reason to think it would have had like a more normal more normal neck for a mammal so yeah, there's a, there's a Tetrapod Zoology article called uh dude you've got your rabbit neck all wrong or something <laughs> no you have your giant fossil rabbit neck all wrong which is oh my god it's from 2011 so depressing when things are from such a long time ago it's from years back so <laughs> that's yeah that's depressing how awful yeah. things have been happening for years things things just don't stop happening do they it's like no, they just keep happening for years and years, and years. Yeah. you think of a paleontologist you might have figured that out by now well yeah just come on stuff just stop just, just stop. stop i just, stop. just need to catch up do you know how hard it is to write books and things when things keep happening <laughs> come on stuff uh neuroleg is from from menorca it's it's big it's estimated mass of about 12 kilos so it's about 10 times bigger than an average bunny the average bunny being Oryctolagus caniculus, uh, if you live here in Europe. Uh, and this is 12 kilos is, is twice as big as the largest domestic rabbit, the Flemish one, uh, making Neurolagus the biggest rabbit of them all. And relatively small it's eyes. It's pretty small though, isn't it? I mean, it's not like you go, wow, a, t- a 12 kilo animal. If it was yeah. an order of magnitude bigger than the biggest rabbit, I think that would be interesting. But this just feels like within rabbit sort of... I mean, I'd, I'd, you'd be you'd go, wow, if you saw it. That's the biggest rabbit I've ever seen. <laughs> but, it's, you know, it's a fossil. It's not a hippo bunny. <laughs> yeah. Or a, yeah, come on, Legomorphs, come on, get yeah. it together. It's pretty pathetic, yeah. really. 12 kilos, yeah. I mean, come on. And it seems it, seems it couldn't jump. Features of it's apparently it's like spine... Proportions of its limbs indicate that it couldn't couldn't jump, and relatively small eyes, relatively small auditory bully. The parts of the uh, skull associated with the size of the ears indicate that its senses weren't as. Uh, I never like saying stuff like this because it sort of implies that animals are. In, uh, oh. <laughs> Sorry, I just, 
<clears throat> yeah. Uh, there's a re- there's a really cool paper just come out by um, uh, Matt Wadle and uh, colleagues on um, correlating skull form in legomorphs to the form to the style of locomotion, mm-hmm. and they found that the um, the you can tell from the skull from the the plane of the base to the brain case relative to the angle of the face you can get some inclination of like uh how the whole skull is oriented in life so obviously because some animals have got uh the face is sort of a con- more or less a continuation of the long axis of the the skull base the base of cranium whereas others the face is rotated downwards and they found that there was a correlation between this facial orientation and the style of locomotion with the rapid like leapers and hoppers and stuff having i think this is right having the most strongly downward downward pointing faces presumably because they want to get the face out of the way so they can see as they're moving at speed um but the paper's in PeerJ, it's open access it's been written about on sv pow just thought i should mention that because it's a cool paper yeah and like them like them also pretty cool pretty weird animals they're weird if they're so if I'm small and pathetic yeah but you've got a Mega bias, haven't you? What? A mega bias? <laughs> yeah, it's the biggest bias I've ever seen. <laughs> a bias towards megafauna. <laughs> like, this lizard's the biggest ever. I used to have this conversation with people like Mike Taylor, sauropod Mike Taylor. This lizard was huge. How huge? 1.7 kilos, 80 centimeters long. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, okay, so. Now with your new crazy order, we're going to go on to <laughs> news from the world of Dan and John. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. So oh, now, sorry, seen- oh, yeah. Thank you, Jonathan Mitchell, for your question, and thank oh, you yeah. all our cash for questioners. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed listening to that stuff at the start. Because normally people don't listen to this stuff. They li- they just you know they do this. They just listen to the funny stuff at the start, and then it gets to the science, and they all turn off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, news from the world of Darren and Chuck. Ah, you've got to listen to this now. Um, where's, the, where's the agenda? I can't remember what I wrote down. Well, you wanted to talk about your short neck dash darkard. Oh! That's it. Did I? Yeah. Wow. That's all you've written down. Short neck has darkard. So, as darkard pterosaurs, myself and colleagues work on as darkard pterosaurs, and uh, we've got a bunch of new ones from Romania where I'm about to, I'm leaving in a couple of days for fieldwork in Romania once again. Um, Mark Witten, Gareth Dyke, Matthias Vermeer, Steve Brissati, myself, can't remember who else, probably another 10 authors. Um, <laughs> we described a single neck vertebrae. It's <laughs> huge. I hate this. I'm sorry. I really hate this, but it's not. It's nothing to do with me. It's to do with the politics of working in groups. So vast army of co-authors, and uh, oh yeah, Radu Tatianu is on the authorship as well. A whole team of one, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, I can't even count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven authors. <laughs> publish a paper on a single as darkered neck That's one for every angle for <laughs> someone to take an overview and co- coordinate everyone is that how it works that's exactly how it works <laughs> not um it's in american museum novitatis and uh, contact me if you want the pdf the, the big deal about this vertebra is it's not particularly big um uh, i'm gonna say 90 millimeters long that feels about right no, 100 millimeters long and it's 
definitely from an Asdark. It's got a whole bunch of features. It that shows that it must belong to an Asdark. It can't come from anything else. And it seems to be from an adult. It's got various features, the finished bone texture and so on, the characteristic of adults, not juveniles. Uh, and it's probably a number four in the neck. These animals have, I think it's 11 uh, cervical vertebrae. So it's from the middle of the neck-ish. And it's unusually broad for its length. It's a very short, stocky vertebra. And if we extrapolate what we know about the size of the fourth cervical vertebra to the whole neck, there, there is a, an approximate relationship. This comes from an Asdarkid that overall must have had a proportionally short neck. So this idea that Asdarkids are all alike and that they're all long-necked terrestrial stalkers, um, we have now got indications this is not true and there's a little bit more diversity in them than we'd, than we'd you know, previously thought. Some of them are relatively short-necked. Uh, and this isn't the only contribution on this. I haven't blogged about it or made a big deal out about it because about it, it's just, like I say, what a paper on a single vertebra. Wait, we've got other stuff in the system that's about other specimens. Yeah. And you you know about this and, you know, it's been spoken about at conferences and so on. But we've got more exciting data to come on short-necked as darkids. So what does this mean in terms of, like, lifestyle and the overall look of the animals and the eternal debate as to whether they were flighted or flightless. Is that a debate? Of course it is. We talk about it all the time. Yeah, but no one's actually seriously arguing they're flightless, are they? Uh, well, it's been published. There's a paper, there's that paper by Don Henderson where he says they were... They were he says yeah, where well, he said if this, is, this um, estimate is correct, which it wasn't. He overestimated their weight by two. He did. He had, yes, he had Quetzalcoatlus at half a ton because he used a... John Civic <laughs> reconstruction. <laughs> I've used I've used the who's who's done particularly bad prehistoric animals. Not not talking about John Civic here. That would be rude. But um, I used this Rudolf Zallinger Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, um, and it the, came out of fifty tons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um. Uh, I know which picture he based it on too. Uh, and John Sibbett, yeah. and I've said this to people before. I'm not sure I've said it on the podcast, but he um he alters proportions of animals drastically to fit them in pictures. Um, You're talking about Civic, not yeah, Civic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Trusting Civic's proportions is is crazy because especially on something which is gangly and weird like an Ashdarkid. You know this. I know this. All of our listeners know this. Yeah. Um. um Yes, but, so, but there's but yes, there's, there's no it's not a perpetual. I'm just saying it's not a perpetual debate because uh, well, I just don't think it's very. I don't think it's taken seriously, is it? The, I'm pretty sure that it totally is, and that that there are several people that work on as darkids who have yeah mentioned this. See, see, I, I can tell you for a fact this is the case because at the the Rio Terrasol meeting, the last Terrasol meeting there was, the next one is is this year in Portsmouth, the UK. But there was there were a couple of posters, um, not by me, but by other teams of European workers who were talking quite seriously about the idea that these animals are flightless. I don't know whether I should. Well, yeah, Fabio Dallavecchia and all those guys. I was, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't say it because they haven't published it, but they are definitely thinking that that there were several islands in the Lake Cretaceous, European islands in Eastern Europe, um, as well as in Southern Europe, like 
what's now part of the well the the, the Adriatic Dinaric Carbonate platform. So parts of what's now parts of like Italy and the Balkans and stuff. And they were they've got evidence for giant Landstarkers there, and it's like it's weird. You've got these they're they're, they're wondering whether yeah. So this is well, I, I don't discount the possibility that you could find flightless Landstarkers. I just don't think there's any evidence that it, current evidence, although that maybe they've seen fossils I haven't, but that yeah. such things exist. Until we get something that doesn't have a proper wing, right? I think this idea is a bit dead in the water. Show us a wing. That's what we need to see. Oh, dead in the water is the wrong thing to say. You, you mean it's a, at the moment it's conjectural or hypothetical. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. Not even, it's not even explaining anything, so it's not even a hypothesis. Well, I think it's a hypothesis. No, it's, just con- it's a conjecture, not a hypothesis. It's not explaining anything at all. It's not even tr- attempting to explain anything, as far as I can make out. Hmm. Let's have an extended philosophical discussion about this. <laughs> a conjecture, I would say that, yes. A speculation that such things okay. could exist. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough, yeah. fair enough. Which okay, I agree so with. It might be true. But, uh, the, it, yeah. you know, it, it's a conjecture, yeah, maybe. Okay. But as a hypothesis, no. The point remains it's that it's... <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. Yeah. The point remains that it's something that is, yeah, yeah, <laughs> mentioned here and there by terrible <laughs> Um Okay. So, anyway, uh, so yeah, so so a small-ish like oh, wingspan, still reasonably sized. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Wingspan's going to be like two and a half, three meters ish. Uh, smallish, short-necked-ish, uh, as darkid on the Hadzeg Island in the Hadzeg Island fauna, and there is more data to come, more stuff to come on. Sean and Tesdarkids, and on, of course, on Hadzeg Island animals, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that paper's out. Um, Mark Witten blogged about it at markwitten-com.blogspot. Uh, hyphen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably just go to markwitten.com and click on blog. It's probably the easiest way. Probably the yeah. easiest thing, yeah. So, so that's news from the world of Darren and John. Obviously, I'm busy with busy with a couple of books at the moment. But although it's kind of depressing because all I flipping do every day is work on kids' books. Just, oh, just, and yeah. when I'm, you know, it's like you're thinking, I just, I need days where I spend time on these these big books that I'm trying to do, and it just doesn't happen because. Well, there you go, people. Support your support Darren on Patreon, and he can stop working on kids' books and other well, books yeah. that you don't want to do. Well, exactly, because I have to say yes to all these children's books. Don't get me wrong; I kind of don't. I don't really dislike doing them, but it's just it just takes up every single day. Yeah. Uh, so, anything from the doing more Tetsu content? Oh, totally. What has been on Tetsu lately? Is that well, a new segment that you're introducing? Yes. <laughs> Shrew opossums. Cane lestids. I thought I'd write about them. Just I thought it was late at night, and I thought, hey, you know what? There isn't there isn't enough of on the internet. Shrew opossums. So remote shrew opossums. <laughs> and of course, there's so much weird stuff that I'll have to come back to them and uh, talk about them some more. Uh, sexual dimorphism in bird bills, uh, including in the Huia, which is like an old article that I just revamped a little bit. I wrote about coots because I took a load of photographs of them lately while at Kew Gardens. Uh, what about news from the world of John? Uh, I haven't really got any news. I've been working on stuff, but it's taking forever. Um, I can't really talk about it. Well, I could, but I won't. Good story. Yeah. Um, 
And then, news from the world of news. (laughs) (laughs) It's going terribly. Why? I don't see this as any more terrible than normal. (laughs) It's a lot worse than normal. (laughs) We're drifting around. (laughs) I don't know what you're going to say next, but (laughs) you're not saying anything. This is terrible. Okay. Right. So, news from the world of news, which for some reason is at the back of the show now. <laughs> okay. So, what have we got here? We got a new tape here, right? Yes. Yeah. But Teddy Roosevelt shot it. Um, and <laughs> an albino tape here? Yeah. Did Teddy Roosevelt shoot that one as well? Not yet. Not but yet. there's an albino tape here. Uh, it's a it's a lowland tape here, Brazilian tape, terrestrial. I think it was uh, photographed by a camera trap recently, and without having done any <laughs> reading about it whatsoever, I don't have an article about it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure people have said, "Oh my God, albino tape here!" Has anyone ever seen anything like this before? Surely not. It's totally new. Oh my God, did you know that tapeists could be albino? And it's like, well, duh. <laughs> I've got an albino tape here right here. <laughs> And it's like, look, here's here's an albino tape here that was kept in a zoo. Here's one that was photographed in the wild two years ago. Here's one that was famous and made it onto the cover of a book. This is the one that went on a chat show. You know, there's there's albino tape here. Pa, pa, right? Okay, pa. good. So that I say ha and no, <laughs> and no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a no to that. I'm quoting the movie. Okay, uh, so. We've got mm. here theropod neo-flightlessness from Fiducia Shirkers. Uh, oh, nope, that comma is the next item. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. theropod neo-flightlessness from Fiducia and Shirkers. What's what's this well, about? Well, I sort of seen know. It, well, yeah, so um, obviously we spoke about S- Stephen Shirkers last time. And so far as I recall, not having checked the comments on the podcast website lately, maybe I should do that right now. Nobody has yet corrected the pronunciations of his name. And given that we variously said Stefan, Stephen, Cherkas, and Zerikas, and various other things, um, we clearly got it right. So, But I reckon, I reckon Stephen Cherkas. Uh, oh, yeah, more f- follow-up. So it turns out that Texas is bigger than France. Yeah. Uh you see the follow-up on monkeys and banjos. I thought we weren't doing follow-up this episode. No, but now that I'm looking at these, now that yeah, looking at the uh, comments, I can't. So we were talking about talking about Stephen Cherkus last time. I just thought it was appropriate to say that Stephen Cherkus has posthumously had a paper published, co-authored with Alan Fiducia. Alan Fiducia. Mm. Uh, I was going to say something else then. And um, it's specifically on the the the, the 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 flightlessness stuff that we spoke about. We've covered this before, haven't we? The, uh, the this is familiar to people who we talked about it last episode. Yes, last episode. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people that anyone that knows dinosaurs or knows the dinosaur issue will be familiar with this idea. This is what happens when you drink while podcasting. <laughs> I need some more. Um, okay, that some theropod dinosaurs... The bird-like theropod dinosaurs, Greg Paul argued in Predatory Dinosaurs of the World, and in a couple of other sources, that 
uh, the, some of the more bird-like ones, like the Oviraptorosaurs and the Dromaeosaurs and the Triodontids, he argued that these animals actually descend from a flight-capable Archaeopteryx-like ancestor. And we're going for the term neo-flightless for this term, for this phenomenon, which is a bit dumb because it's not... Why should I don't it be like ne- that term. Yeah. yeah. Paul likes it, but I don't like it. Why like should it be neo-flightless? Flightless. Oh, yeah, because they are flightless. They wouldn't neo-flightless. They died a long time ago. They're not doing it for new now. So uh, in this article by Fiducci and Cherkas... Now, this is interesting because this subject, there are actually three things that are happening right now or have just happened which are relevant to this particular hypothesis. So Fiducia and Cherkas, they point to uh, Chordipteryx. Chordipteryx is indisputably uh, an oviraptorosaur, and it's obviously a fully feathered oviraptorosaur, and by extension we think that all oviraptorosaurs had feathering similar to Chordipteryx. But Cherkas and Fiducia point to the forelimb of Chordipteryx, and they say, look... It's got a propatagium, so a membrane that goes from the shoulder to the wrist. And they're saying, ooh, you can only have a propatagium if you descend from a flighted ancestor. So they're saying that this is support for the idea that Oviraptor... Well, actually, I don't know if they say that Chordipteryx is an Oviraptorosaur because they've got their own strange Crazy. ideas. About yeah. yeah. Uh, Fiducia and colleagues have always wanted Chordipteryx to be a flightless bird anyway. And they've latched onto ideas that... <laughs> Oviraptorosaurs are nested within the bird clade. But um, they're saying that this propatagium evidences flightlessness. So they're saying, ah, this this proves that that these kinds of dinosaurs aren't dinosaurs at all. They're secondarily flightless birds. So this is where it becomes more complicated because the vast majority of evidence, as listeners will know, the vast majority of evidence demonstrates that birds are a subgroup of theropod dinosaurs. Um and the idea that some of them are f- secondarily flightless is consistent with, with, with that. It just means positing the origin of flight a bit earlier within Manraptor and theropods than in some other hypotheses. But Fiducci and Cherkas and their colleagues, they argue that these birds and these possibly flightless birdy things like Oviraptorosaurs and Dromaeosaurs, they're saying they're nothing to do with dinosaurs. They're some independent thing that evolved from like Longisquamer-type animals in the Triassic. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the the flightlessness stuff isn't totally objectionable. Repeating again stuff from last episode, but the idea that this that these birds and bird like Manoraptorans might be a totally separate lineage from dinosaurs is just crackpot nonsense. I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, but, it's an interest. Sorry, go ahead. Well, what? Sorry, one more thing, which is them saying that they're seeing a propatagium, propatagium, propatagium. That them saying they can see the structure in Chordipteryx. First of all, um. If you do find that structure, are we sure that that's evidence of descent from a flighted ancestor? Because this is apologies to those who heard about this on Facebook already, but but there are like animals with skin flaps all over the place. A good example, classic example is cats. If you look at a sphinx cat, or if you get a cat, a normal one, and shave it, you'll <laughs> you'll find that they've got a skin flap across the elbow, and they've got a massive one between the elbow and the side of the body, which look very much like membranes. In quotes, they look like membranes. And and in fact, you know, maybe they do yeah, function Yeah, I was going to say, way. Darren, they might actually be membranes. That's the thing with cats. They might, that's maybe what they're using for, because they've got a big flap between their belly and their knee as well. Yeah, but what about the 
other mammals that have got similar things and don't jump out of trees. Yeah. Cats don't regularly jump out of trees anyway. It's only like a desperate... What about big cats? They've got these structures. Yeah, and, to a lesser degree. Not necessarily to a lesser degree. I don't know if you've seen the skin flap between the the thigh and the belly and like lions and stuff. It's huge. I think it's just because they've got a big load of floppy skin. They've got a big load of floppy skin because they gorge and they... they Plus, they're growing babies inside them, which means they they become much bigger at times, and uh, and also lions a lot do of- not have as big a flap of skin there as little cats. It's nowhere near as big. Well, then what about okay, mustelids and loads of like like voles and hamsters? They've got tons I'm of with floppy about skin. mammals. With you, feels like a losing uh, wicket for me, but uh, but, but it's, yeah. It's. I think you're you're gonna agree with me here. Yeah. I think it's more to do with the fact that they need this loose skin because they're tussling with prey, which often involves like you know animals bite and pull and pull on the skin and stuff. And a lot of these animals like squeeze through little burrows and you know between yeah. under roots of trees and that sort of thing. I think it's been advantageous for them to have like quite a loose fitting skin. You know they say that you know weaselly type things they can almost it's an exaggeration, obviously, but they can almost turn around in their own skin if they're in a burrow or something. And if you grab like a ferret or a stoat or a mink, as I have on many occasions, you can you can pull this fucking skin out of the animal out, you know, like a coat. And that's nothing to do with aerodynamics. It's because they got a floppy skin, and then obviously it's like you know got they got like a pelt which has got lots of air in it, and for insulatory reasons, we should be. This is all a stupid tangent that I've gone, shouldn't have yeah. gone down this tangent in the first place, because we should be thinking about birdie things. But I think it's kind of true for bird type animals, or birds, even to use the shorthand term. <laughs> I, th- I think it's kind of true for birds as well, because a lot of them, you know, they've got feathers with, which got a lot of air in them. They've often got fairly loose fitting skin. So if an animal dies, let's say a chickeny type thing dies, it's a lion on its side. Its feathers all flopping, flopping and sloughing off its decomposing carcass. Anyway, you cannot say that on the floppy dead arm of a cordypteryx type animal that you've definitely found a probotargium just because you found some sort of skin web. I think that could just be an artifact of the fact that the skin does not tightly adhere to the bone. These animals are not perfectly shrink wrapped versions of their skeletons. Mm. Um, yeah. But here's what I'd say to all that, is that... It's, ha, I know. It, yeah, no, but that if if the... I, I haven't seen it, so I don't know how convincing this patag, so-called patagium is. But if it was relatively convincing, like we were relatively convinced there was a big flap of skin running from the wrist to the shoulder, you know, it was fairly extensive like that, um, then I'd say, yeah, that is... Um, well, that's explained by the idea that they're secondarily flightless, and it's not explained otherwise. I mean, you might be able to think of some explanation, or you might say, well, it's just because animals can have this sort of thing. But it is actually explained by the neoflightless, yeah. So, yeah. the secondarily flightless hypothesis, which is, lends credence to it. It's a bit like the reorientation of the glenoid and a bunch of other things which we use as, as arguments. None of them are killer. Mm. Um, but they are explained by this hypothesis, whereas... Otherwise, they're just they're a bit mysterious or it's vague, you know. Um, yeah, I was going to say something about um, 
Yes, this idea that they uh, Fiducia has done this before, and they spent years and years and years and years on this, trying to argue that birds must have had flight from the trees down, and if that was the case, therefore dinosaurs could not possibly be their ancestors, right? And this feels like a similar sort of move, and it doesn't work. Mm. <laughs> because you, I, I've always thought, well, so what? I mean, if... Um, birds evolve flight trees down. I mean, I know this is a whole big rat's nest we don't want to get into. Mm-hmm. But even if that was true, even if that was absolutely 100% true, that doesn't really tell us that they didn't evolve from theropod dinosaurs. Doesn't tell us anything of the sort. It's naive falsification. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like they might. this might be another similar move to that. Yeah. No, I, th- I, t- I think it totally is. Yeah. I think it totally is. But, and it doesn't work. But, I mean, Greg Paul's no. work is out there, and, and Shirkus have all people would certainly know about it. I don't understand yeah. what they're trying to do here. No, it's... it's it, I, I kind of think a lot of it is kind of intellectually intellectually dishonest. But uh, I just, I just thought, it was, I thought it was worth mentioning in view of the fact that we, we covered Stefan Jerkus and we've mentioned the, flightlessness, the possibility of flightlessness in non-birds, non-bird manoraptorans. And I said this is only... I, I kind of, I'm thinking about blogging about this because I haven't really much covered the whole uh, Greg Paul flightlessness stuff on Tetrapods already. I don't think I have anyway. But um, this is one of three things that have all come out about the same time. So there's also so there's that. Okay, so Cherkus and Fiducia, Fiducia and Cherkus talking about flightlessness, evidence of flightlessness in Cordipteryx. There's this paper by Sorkin Boris, uh, aerial ability in basal Dinosauria, and uh, Sorkin Boris um, has. Like looked to uh, a whole bunch of dromaeosaurid and truodontid type manoraptorans, and is saying that that there's evidence in these animals for uh, a flight ability and things like I think Cynornithosaurus again I, I haven't read it, but um, aerial ability in Unanlagines other than Rahonavis. They're talking about they're basically supporting the Greg Paul stuff. And um I noticed that they cite the um the idea that Shefax and other lemurs might be capable of uh, aerial like gliding behaviour, which is something I've written about on Tetrapodzoology. Um and they they've got uh, they got Greg Paul to produce a hypothetical flightless early oviraptorosaur, mm. which they've dubbed oviraptor volans, a hypothetical construct, another one of those hypothetical kind of proto-flightless animals. And so this paper is very much, yeah, in in the same ballpark as, yeah, the whole Greg Paul flightlessness stuff. I, I, I don't know how well this is going to be received if uh, I don't think people are going to pay much attention to it, to be honest. But... Um, but then there's also the stuff that, that I'm working on with Andrea Cow and Tom Brougham um, on um, the idea that Bowler Bondock from the Hatzeg Island fauna, which was originally published as a dromaeosaurid, we think that, that there's, a, there's a weird animal. It's got a bunch of features that look more like bird characters, look more like av island characters, uh, characters that you expect of early like Cretaceous birds, like the Yehalornithids, those mm. kind of things. So we think that Balabondok, and we've you know run several analyses and collected various character states and so on that seem to support this idea. Balabondok is not 
Dromaeus saurid. It's not a Dinonychosaur. It's a flightless bird, but it's a flightless bird that's so Dromaeosaurid-like that it's actually, you know, made people who have described it think that it was a Dromaeosaurid. They said, oh, it's a Dromaeosaurid and it's convergently got a few bird-like characters, but you can turn it around the other way. It's an actual, an actual fact. It looks more like a flightless bird that's got a few Dromaeosaurid-type characters. And if you were to see the thing in life, if you were to reconstruct it, which we've done, um, well, you could say the same for all these animals, these Dromaeosaurids, these Chewodontids, these birds. You'd be, you couldn't point to one of them and say that one's on the bird lineage and that one's on the Dromaeosaurid lineage because... <laughs> Yeah, so although it, in- nowadays it seems really important because we've got this huge big radiation of birds and we don't have a radiation from the other side. But yeah. back then, it's, they're all the same sort of animal, really, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. we've uh, we've presented this at conferences. We've published a couple of abstracts on it. We haven't got the paper published yet, but I don't, I don't think it's a secret. That's uh, I mean, Andrea has included that result in several of his other papers anyway. So I think I'm allowed to say everything I just said. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, no one listens anyway. No one listens. <laughs> Only 3.75 million listeners. Did I mention that? Yep, you've mentioned that a couple of times. Um, Carnifex. Carnifex. Now, did a little reconstruction of it. There you go. Carnifex. Oh, nice. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Right. Carnifex. Car- <laughs> Carnifex is a crocodilomorph. It's a member of the crocodile lineage. From the Carnian, the last part of the Triassic goes Carnian, Norian, Raetian. So Carnian, so it's around about 230 million years old. It's from North Carolina, which is in a little country called the United States of America. And this is a surprisingly big crocodilomorph. So we know that during the late Triassic, we know that dinosaurs are around and are mostly at small body size, and some of them are starting to become large. And obviously you've got large ones in the Norian, the Ratian in particular. Uh, and But you've also got loads of croc group archosaurs. And in the Carnian, you've got like poposaurs and rausukians and aetosaurs. You've also got phytosaurs, which are not archosaurs. Uh, they're outside of Arcosauria now, sort of these like, amphibious, kind of vaguely crocodile-like things. Um, but Carnifex shows, as does another animal called Redonda Veneta, these show that some of the big Arcosaurian predators in these faunas are these early gracile crocodilomorphs. Carnifex, the skull will be about 50 centimetres long. And that's basically the whole uh, gee whiz point of the paper, which published by published by Lindsay Zano and colleagues, I think it's in Nature, they're saying that, wow, big terrestrial crocodilomorphs mm. are, are among the big archosaurian predators in this fauna. It's not all just big Rausukians and poposaurs. And I think they imply in the paper, I, again, I would need to have it in front of me, I don't have that, but I think they imply, they're saying that maybe... Uh, is that right? Do they say that crocodilomorphs were taking the role of Rausukians before Rausukians did that? Before Rausukians were top big predators? Because that's if they do say that, there's reason to think that's not quite right because there are Rausukians from the same fauna that they're, they're not so well known and they're known from elsewhere in the world at the same time. But 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 whatever, whatever. Yeah. I think the point is that big terrestrial gracile crocodilomorphs uh, were big terrestrial predators in these faunas. When I say big, with a skull of about uh, 50 centimetres long? I think that's right. Yeah, maybe even a bit longer looking at the scale bar here. Yeah. yeah. Carnifex would have been about three metres long in total. So that's big, but that's not huge. We've spoken about Rausukians before, haven't we? And there are giant ones 
possibly of uh, over six meters, possibly approaching eight meters or even more. So it's not a giant of that nature. But it's also, I've been interested in the reconstructions that have appeared online because they've got this like fairly decent partial skull and they've produced this skull reconstruction, which you've, you've probably seen. Yeah. Um, and they've got a few other bits and pieces like vertebrae and I think there's some bits of the pectoral girdle, but they haven't got anything like a complete skeleton. So what's shown online is extrapolated from other early crocodilomorphs, Sphenosuchians in particular. Um, there's some... In, some there's some articles online that talk about Carnifex being bipedal and reconstruct it as bipedal. And it's like, where the hell did that come from? It's like none of the, none of the early crocodile, well, none of the crocodilomorphs are bipedal. There's no reason to think there's bipedality at all. There's yeah. no indication from this animal that it was bipedal or semi-bipedal or capable of bipedality. I'm sure it could rear up on its back legs if it wanted to. But um, yeah, that's a complete red herring. I don't know where that came from. Still, cool animal. Cool animal. And I think I might modify my drawing because obviously it's got to go in my book. But Carnifex. Do you know what I think of when I see the word Carnifex? What? Thylacoleo. Yeah. Yeah. Is that Carnif... Is it, is it the same? Carnif- Carnifex? It's Carnifex. With Carnifex, an Carnifex. Yeah. So I don't know if it means the same thing. I can't believe this isn't um, preoccupied. Well, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, Google you know, search this is all that comes up. You'd think that it would come up in some list if it was something, but yeah, I'm sure they checked. <laughs> I'm sure they. I'm sure they were pretty thorough. Yeah, or thorough. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like a. <laughs> sorry, how do they say thorough in America? <laughs> in sorry, the United States of America, because that's not the rest. That's not the whole of the Americas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thorough. <laughs> I think it depends on where if I, whereabouts you're from. Um, I was going to say something else, but you've made me forget now. Sorry. Uh, you were talking about whether the name Carnivex is preoccupied or not. <laughs> doesn't sound like it. Doesn't sound like a croc. It sounds like a mammal. Yeah. <laughs> it should end in sucus. Yeah, Carnivex is sucus. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's a rule. You have to do that, right? <laughs> Just like pterosaurs now have to end in Draco. Yeah. Yep. Apart from the ankylosaurs that do as well. Um, have you heard about Silhouette Gate? Silhouette Gate? Yeah. No. So this paper by Lindsay Zano and colleagues has got little silhouettes on a um, time chart yeah. showing obviously where the different groups are. And, well, they have done what everybody else in the whole history <laughs> of science ever has with silhouettes. Not that I'm belittling this situation, but they have taken illustrations produced by other people and not credited them and just turned them into silhouettes. Yeah. And uh, their silhouette that depicts Carnifex is, I think this is right, I think it's copied from or taken from a reconstruction of another animal done by Jamie Hedden. And, um, yeah, this this happens a lot. This happened to me on quite a few occasions, actually. Um, people just find a picture in a book and just turn it into a silhouette and... Now, I'm not yeah. bothered, and I know a lot of people aren't bothered, but I think people are entitled to be bothered. So I, I don't, you know, don't want to make a big deal out of it. But on the other hand, I do think that if you're going to use anything done by anyone else, you've got to do something about it. You know, you've got to credit them or get... or get. Yeah, there's a medium here, isn't there? Like, it's not like you're going to go and sue anyone. 
Yeah. And it's not that it's, it's just perfectly okay. It's just a bit rude. That's all. Yeah. Plus, of course, there are now, um, fi- well, Philopick. Philo, for those who don't know, do you know what Philopick is? Me, it's- yes. I know what Philopick is. Well, tell us then. It's a website <laughs> of Philopick. I know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, of. Run by. Mike Kesey, of course. Mike Kesey. Yeah. Of Cow and Kesey Corner. Um, uh, where people can upload silhouettes of the entirety of the Tree of Life, I believe. Yep. Um, and you can do neat... And uh, everything on there is a Creative Commons license of some sort, so you can use it all for free. Mm. I mean, a lot of it requires attribu- attribution, but yeah. It's quite normal. And then, uh, but you can do neat things like show me the entire lineage of this this taxon and I'll go back and show you the closest to each node. It's really quite neat. Mm. Have you got anything up there? Uh, I've only submitted one thing. I keep meaning to put more stuff in, but mine yeah, is the Comsognathus. Mm. I've submitted yeah. maybe three yeah. animals, which is kind of funny given that I've recently been drawing hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds <laughs> of animals. But the reason I haven't done it is partly because I'm very lazy, mm. partly because I don't want my stuff to, because a lot of this is obviously for this giant in, pro, in prep book I'm doing. And you can support me at Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and so I don't want the novelty to be completely unnovelty yeah. eyes. Look, there's yeah, some birds. Yeah, that's very nice birds. There's some cetaceans. Nice cetaceans. There's some birds. Are they the same birds? Some, Archaic artiodactyls, uh-huh. more birds. More birds. That's got a ribbon fish. Uh-huh. Camels. Uh-huh. Fossil camels. <laughs> fossil camels. Artiodactyls in a squirrely type thing. Uh-huh. It's for something else, completely different project. <laughs> Giant more camels. Fossil Cretaceous lizards. Yeah. Camels. Theropods. Theropods. Yeah. Camel. Camel. God, there's a lot of camels. Well, there are a lot of camels. Oh. That's a rhabdodontid. <laughs> Another lizard. Yeah. It's another lizard. <laughs> that one was terrible. Some more lizards. Well, horse. Yeah. Weird fish. Weird fish. Lots of fish. <laughs> That's called an embolomere. Those are yeah. uh, assorted tetrapods. Xenarthrans. <laughs> uh, assorted tetrapods. Uh, Proterosuchid. Yeah. That, of course, is a friendly stem mammal. Mm. It's an ophiacodontid. <laughs> Another lizard. Bats. Now we come to bats. Bats. Oh, good. Bats. There are a lot of bats. They're in another pile. Crassigerinus. Yeah. Haven't finished that one. You get the general. You get yeah. the general impression. Yeah. The general, whatever it's called, the uh, the, the take home message there. Oh, yeah, I got the take home so, message there. And uh, how easy would it be to convert all of those into silhouettes? Pretty easy. Yeah. Probably the biggest dump of silhouettes on Philopick ever. This isn't all the pictures. There's lots more. I know you've done heaps, yeah. hundreds and hundreds, haven't you? Literally hundreds. This 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 book, should it ever be finished, <laughs> is going to be extraordinarily. Well, it's it's going to be like nothing else. I'm serious. Good, if yeah. it's ever done. Yeah, look at this grebe. Mm, that's a nice grebe. Mm. <laughs> One of them's upside down. What's upside down? Well, it doesn't matter because I scan it and then 
cut it oh. out and <laughs> move it around. Okay. I thought some birds were upside down. But th- do you understand why, why that grebe is so weird? Which, uh, no, why is it weird? Have you ever... Well, grebes, obviously, are normally shown in the water. Mm. And when they come onto the land, they're normally shown just sitting on their chest. Yeah. And you can find in the books people saying that grebes can't move on the land apart from like by pushing themselves along with their feet, shuffling along. Yeah. But the sternum staying in contact with the ground, not so. They can stand because they can stand up and walk like that, and even run like that. Yeah. Albeit only for a few seconds at a time, but they can run on tippy toes. Grebes can run with a like hor- diagonal body. Okay. And run along. It looks ridiculous. See, uh-huh. I, yeah. See, I thought I'd already seen that. Maybe so you have. It wasn't. That didn't surprise me. I didn't know that they weren't meant to be able to do that. Oh, they're not meant to do that. The books say they can't. Right. Uh, okay. There you go. Because, like, late nineteenth-century taxidermists, their convention for mounting grebes and also divers, or loons <laughs> divers um, they always show these animals as sort of sitting like kind of upright yeah and then more recently like you know basically for the whole of the 20th century people have come along and said you idiots they can't do that you've mounted them all wrong because of course they were mounted by people that never saw one in life they just assumed they could sit like cormorants or ducks um, yeah. but now it turns out well actually they kind of can do that they don't probably like doing it they don't do it very often they might only do it when they're stressed or beleaguered or whatever. But um, they can do it. Yeah. There you go. Right. Let's wrap this up then. And do you know what grebes are most closely related to out of all living birds? Oh, guessing bird phylogeny? No. No, I have no yeah. idea. Go on. Guess. Go on. Guess. Uh, ostriches. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> really? Another guess. Eagles. Wrong. Another <laughs> guess. Go on. Go on. Penguins. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Woodpeckers. Wrong. <laughs> Ooh. Oh. Um. Corvids. Think the, no. <laughs> think, think of all the people shouting at the computer right now. Yeah, I'm enjoying that. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Tinamu. No. Tinamu. No. Um. Is that a pterodostro? <laughs> pterodactyl not pterodactyls <laughs> are you going to make me say it yes flamingos well done how did yeah. you possibly guess <laughs> yeah grebes and flamingos are sister groups yeah yeah well nothing surprised me in bed phylogeny mm, just been doing the bit for the book on the Mir- mirandornithines which is the the grebe flamingo clade and it becomes more confusing when you bring in the fossils. Anyway, sorry, you were saying we should wrap it up. Yeah, let's wrap it up. Yeah. So, so let us know, listeners, what you think of the uh, the new stylings of the uh, <laughs> Tetrapod Zoology podcast. And uh, I don't know, was it a complete disaster or a massive sense of fulfilment and winning on a Charlie Sheen style level? It's a lot of editing. No, it's fine. Oh, you think that's fine? That's not fine. Oh, dear. It's <laughs> <laughs> not fine. It was terrible. There's so much mumbling. and like, what's happening oh. now? I'm just doing this. I'm just looking at this. What's happening oh, now? Oh, sorry. Wow. It's like that. 
It's like that the whole way through. Every time we do a change. I forgot to talk about the Christine Janice talk I went to on Kangaroos. That should have been a follow-up. You didn't do follow-up about... because you've, ba- you've, bon- <laughs> you've abolished oh, yeah. follow-up. Sorry. Okay, yeah, no. Hang out with Christine Janice and got some interesting in, uh, insight into her uh, striding, yeah. striding to the new in kangaroo stuff. I think, I think we should talk about that. So, um, oh my God, is that the time? Yeah. So, yeah. <sighs> Tetrapod Zoology Wiki should be looked at, which is at... Wiki.tetzoo.com. Yeah. And uh, look at the Tetzoo-themed stuff created by our friends... Ethan Kosak, who produces the Tetrapod Zoology comic, which is at... Comic.tetsu.com. And John Tamau, Alberta Claw, Rebecca Groom, Gareth Monger, they all contribute to Tetsu Time, the Adventure Time-themed <laughs> Tetsu-based comic, at which is... Time.tetsu.com. Yeah. If you're interested in the kind of stuff we talk about, uh, John and myself and our good friend Mimo Kozman have produced several books you might want to buy, including all yesterday's was about science, speculation, history, paleontology, and cryptozoology. On book one, which can be purchased from our irregular books shop, and Cryptozoologicon Volume Two is soon to be. <laughs> as soon as this book about every single tetrapod is finished. <laughs> Among other projects. Among other projects. It's the art that's holding it. It's you guys are slowing it down. It could be yeah. finished tomorrow. Uh-huh. Um, I sell T-shirts at my Redbubble shop, Redbubble Tetsu shop. There's there's a new one based about cryptozoological literalism, which everyone should get. But I think Cameron's the only person who bought one so far. And I'm a Patreon. Please support me at Patreon. Yeah, a tiny little sum of money. It all adds up, and it might mean I don't have to do all this work that I currently have to do, which stops me from doing other stuff. And you're on Patreon as well, aren't you? I am. Patreon.com forward slash John Conway. And you're Patreon.com forward slash Tetsu. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Actually, I'm going to say a little more about Patreon. Patreon's actually really good. I mean, their their, um, commission is small, and it's really nice getting little recurring donations or subscriptions from people, and you get some neat stuff, right? If you want to ask cash for questions ref- um, regularly, you can support Darren or me and we'll answer your cash for questions. You don't have to send in any money. If you're a Patreon supporter, that's what you get. I think you're at a $5 a month level. And me, something uh, similar, you get free cash for questions. Yes, amongst other neat stuff um, and exclusive things that only go on Patreon for both of us. So yes, Patreon's a good thing. Um, if you're on the fence about it, do it. Yes? Well done. Yeah, I agree. And I just finish, I tweet at... I had no choice. They arrived right before you did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry too. At Tetsu. <laughs> that was a very lacklustre delivery. <laughs> Thank you. It's a very lacklustre kind of day so far. <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> and I blog at Tetsuwad's already currently hosted scientificamerican.com. Okay, I'm at johnconway.co. Um, I'm on Twitter at thejohnconway. That's it. Mm. Let's <laughs> stop this torture. <laughs>